Welcome to the South Carolina State Library's podcast, Library Voices SC. I'm Curtis Rogers, Communications Director, and today I'm pleased to have with us in our virtual podcast studio, Dan Harrison, who is the author of Live at Jackson Station, a book about a rhythm and blues club in rural Hodges, South Carolina in the 1980s that brought a very metropolitan vibe to the sleepy town, but it's also got a true crime angle. Dan is a professor of sociology at Lander University in Greenwood, South Carolina, and also the author of Making Sense of Marshall Ledbetter, The Dark Side of Political Protests. So welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Curtis. I'm happy to be here today. Glad to have you here, even though it's virtual. Yes. Um, So tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and your book, Live at Jackson Station. Sure. Well, as you mentioned, I'm a professor at sociology at Lander University here in Greenwood, South Carolina, and I've been at Lander now for about 16 years. Um, Before Lander, I was teaching up at Furman University up in Greenville, and uh, even before that, I was out in Colorado at uh, Western State College. Um, But I'm actually a a transplant to the South. I'm a transplant to uh, the country. I was born in England and came to the States when I was eight. Um, but Greenwood is home now, and uh, I really love it here, especially the climate. And I love teaching at Lander, a great small school. Um, some of my research interests include sociology of the South, uh, sociology of music, um, visual sociology, environmental sociology. And uh, I normally teach introduction to sociology, the senior capstone experience, and uh, sociological theory. I'm married to Rebecca Salter Harrison, and we have two lovely daughters, and we live uh, in Greenwood. My book, Life at Jackson Station, um, I've been working on it since for about, well, almost seven years, I suppose. I started in May of 2014. And... um, Jackson Station was this uh, really eccentric uh, roadhouse uh, blues bar up in Hodges, South Carolina, which is about nine miles north of Greenwood. And when I first got to Greenwood in 2005, I had heard about a band, which I like a lot. It's called Widespread Panic. I'm not sure if you or your listeners have heard about it. Some of them probably have, which is a fairly famous uh, jam band. They're out of Athens, uh, Georgia. And uh, they're known for having these really kind of big, intense, you know, live shows, normally at, at very large music venues. And so they've played, you know, Jazz Fest in New Orleans tons of times, and they've played Red Rocks in Colorado, t- you know, many times, and they've played Madison Square Gardens and, and so on and so forth. And um, I, my wife and I have, have seen them play before. And when we moved to Greenwood, we were told that they had played actually in Greenwood. And so that... Uh, kind of surprised me a little bit because Greenwood is, you know, as you know, it's a little bit of a, of, a, of a sleepy town, a little bit more exciting than Hodges, but, you know, you wouldn't really expect a, a big musical act like Widespread Panic to, to have played here. So I, I started to ask around a little bit and I, I learned that they had played up in, not in Greenwood, but actually up in, in Hodges, uh, as I said, which is an even smaller town uh, to the north of us. And then I, actually drove up there and I was kind of looking for this venue and I couldn't really see anything. All I saw was a hole in the wall uh, bar, a, a, a dive basically called Harvley's Waterhole, uh, which has actually been in operation since uh, 1961. But that venue was way too small to house 
uh, an act like like widespread panic. And then I realized that they were talking about this structure next to uh, Harvley's, uh, which was this old railroad depot, um, which had been built in 1870, I came to learn, and uh, had been in operation from about uh, 1975 to uh, 1995 as a um, music club, a blues club, a roadhouse. Um, operated by Gerald Jackson, who was a longtime uh, native to the area, and his boyfriend, Steve Bryant, and um, Gerald's mother, Elizabeth Jackson. And so um, I thought that I was kind of interesting that the widespread panic had played there, and, and, but I really didn't think too much of it um, until a few years later, um, I was actually kind of sponsoring, I was, I was promoting a, a very small live music concert in Uptown Greenwood uh, with my friend John Holloway, who has a Sundance Gallery here in Greenwood. And um, for a number of years, John was doing these live music events, and I helped him get in touch with this great singer-songwriter called Walter Salas Umara, uh, who was the lead uh, singer and, and founder of a band called The Silos, which was out of Gainesville, Florida. And so I brought Walter in for a concert and I was having breakfast with him the next day. And uh, he said, tell me about Jackson Station. And I was said, how did you know about Jackson Station? And he said, well, I was just in Atlanta talking to my friend Jeff Calder, who was with a band called the Swimming Pool Cues, uh, another good kind of indie band. And apparently Jeff was kind of raving about it. And so um, it, I really kind of found the excitement that, that Walter had, you know, just listening to this story that another musician had told him about Jackson Station to be really kind of interesting because, um, you know, it's just a music club, right? When you sort of think about it. Um, but that kind of excitement um, that I experienced kind of vicariously, plus the widespread panic element to it, got me very interested in the story. But then I was talking to some other people in Greenwood and I learned that that uh, the club had closed uh, due to a vicious, hateful attack on the owner, Gerald Jackson, uh, one early morning in 1990, when Gerald was uh, viciously assaulted by a patron in the uh, parking lot and was left for dead. And uh, it struck me as a an apparent hate crime, actually. Gerald was gay. He was a very, uh, you know, out, he was an out gay man. He, he was very proud of, of who he was. And um, and so I was wondering, well, you know, was this kind of a hate crime that, that, that happened? It was a very vicious attack. I mean, Gerald actually got hit in the head with a with, with a bush axe that was, you know, lodged deep in his skull. It's very, very tragic. Um, and so those elements sort of, you know, came together and I thought, you know what, this is kind of an interesting story and maybe I can do a little digging to see what's going on there. Um, I was kind of coming off uh, the publication of my first book, as you mentioned, Making Sense of Marshall Ledbetter. And as you know, authors are always looking for the next project. Uh, we gotta have something in the pipeline. And I had enjoyed working on a book length project with uh, Marshall Ledbetter. And I was kind of looking for another one. And this uh, seemed like that opportunity. And so here we are almost seven years later, and the book is now out, which, which is great. It's, it's really nice, nice to see. And um, the feedback has been, has been positive so far. So that's always, that's also good. That is great. And by the way, our listeners will be able to find at our 
um, podcast page, the link to the University of South Carolina Press, uh, so that if you're interested in purchasing a copy, they do have them available for sale there at the USC Press website. And also check your local bookstore. And you can also check your local public library and see if they've got it. So um, it's really fascinating to hear that kind of backstory about how all, all this came about. But um, you know, when you go into the, the true crime angle of it, um, why do you think it's important to tell this kind of story? And since you're a professor, professor of uh, sociology, the, the kind of psychosocial aspects of it, um, I'm, I'm sure play a huge part. Yes, they, they, they really do. And I was actually talking to another um, colleague of mine the other day, and, and, and he noticed that my first book also was sort of a, a, a true crime story. And, um, you know, I was actually, when I, when I first started college, I was thinking I was going to be like a criminal profiler and, and that sort of a thing, which, you know, didn't turn out, um, but that's probably for the best. Um, but I think that, you know, part of me has been uh, and, and continues to be um, kind of drawn to these sort of extraordinary, you know, stories and, and tales that really are sort of too you know, too crazy to believe on, on the face of it. I mean, that, that was certainly the case with Marshall Ledbetter, which is the story of this college student who uh, storms the Florida State Capitol uh, early one morning after a month-long psychedelic mushroom binge as a apparent protest um, against homelessness and cuts to higher education in the state of Florida. Um, he occupies the Sergeant of Arms office and smokes his cigars and drinks his bourbon and then issues a bizarre list of demands, including uh, 666 jelly donuts for all the police and an extra large Gumby's pizza and a, a, a case of beer and a carton of cigarettes and meetings with Lenny from Motorhead and Jello Biafra and Tim. I mean, just crazy, crazy stuff. Right. And, and anyway, he, he ends up being committed to a, a, a psychiatric hospital, which is, I, I won't spoil the rest of, of that story. But um, so, you know, that's a pretty extraordinary kind of a happening. And, um, and, and, and I think with, um, with Life at Jackson Station, it's also a very extraordinary tale. I was very drawn to, uh, you know, the fact that we were talking about two gay men who are operating this blues club in um, a part of the world, which is normally not considered to be very open or very welcoming to gay people. Um, but uh, Gerald and Steve, as I mentioned, were both proud, out, very self-confident, uh, courageous guys. And they really weren't given too much flack about their sexual orientation or, or identity. They were just kind of, I mean, Jackson Station was at the center of the, um, you know, area of, of the community uh, there. Um, so as a, from a sociological standpoint, that was very interesting. Um, you know, we, we tend to think of, you know, red states versus blue states, but often we forget that within the red and the blue, there are these pockets of either red or blue, right? And so even in a, in a, in a fairly conservative state like South Carolina, you do have, you know, little puddles of of blue here and there, um, and, um, and 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 you have you know liberals and conservatives you know mingling 
together, uh, you know, um, rich and poor, rednecks and lawyers and, you know, African-Americans and, and, and white rednecks and, and so on and so forth. And, and Jackson Station was actually that exactly that kind of a place. And somehow um, it all kind of gelled and it came together as this late night establishment where everybody went to, you know, I mean, it didn't really get hopping there till about 1130 at night. Music went until five o'clock in the morning in, in the summertime. And, uh, you know, everybody that I've talked to has some just incredible memory of just how special this this club was. Uh, and so uh, I was I, I never went there, um, but um, but I have been very drawn to to the story. Um, I've had my own experience with sort of special places. I mean, I think we all have kind of these special uh places um, that, that, that are key to our biography. It might be a restaurant at the beach or something, or it might be a little bar, or it might be a, 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 a club that you went to in college or, or something like that, or, or it might be a more of a natural, you know, sort of a place like a waterfall, you know, in the mountains or something. But, um, you know, uh, Jackson Station was a key space in the biography of a lot of people in um, the South Carolina upstate and beyond. And um, it, it, it also was very important in terms of kind of facilitating and um, perpetuating, you know, sort of live music and, uh, you know, throughout the area. Um, it was one club, it was a node on, on a musical network, which extended you know, throughout the state and um, down into Florida and then up to, you know, Virginia and New York and then, you know, out to, uh, you know, Chicago and stuff. And, 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 and so that was another kind of a fascinating part of the, of the project was to analyze it in terms of the perspective of being working musicians who are on the road trying to find a gig and uh, the importance of places like Jackson Station to provide that you know, sort of second home for a night or two. And, uh, and Gerald and Steve, they, they were very caring hosts. They, they, they took care of uh, the bands and all the roadies and, and, and so on and so forth. Uh, one of the reviews listed it as a, or mentioned it was a, a juke joint, a no ordinary juke joint. And when I hear that phrase, that gives me a definite visual. So um, yes. that, that's a, a fascinating take. Um, if you would just tell our listeners a little bit about your writing style and also was your writing style kind of the same for your other book, uh, about Marshall Ledbetter? Um, do you like interview people or, or how did all that take place? Yeah, that's a really fascinating question. And, um, I would say that one of my inspirations for my writing, um, actually is John Krakauer. And I'm not sure if you're familiar with his work, into the wild, into thin air. He's kind of a he, under the banner of heaven, and he's sort of well known for for writing kind of these literary nonfiction uh, type works. And um, early in my career, as a lot of you know professors have to do, we have to kind of you know get write smaller pieces to you know establish sort of a research track record and 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 to you know get promoted and and retained in our appointments and so on and so forth. But if you're lucky, once you sort of get tenure, then you can, you have more time to devote to kind of longer projects. And, and that's what happened with me with 
the Marshall Ledbetter book. And in writing that book and also Jackson Station, I wanted to write in a way that people would really enjoy reading it, which uh, sounds fairly obvious. Um, but the reality is, unfortunately, that, that many academics don't write particularly well. And the type of writing that you see in a lot of uh, academic journals um, might be useful in, you know, from sort of an information, you know, gathering standpoint, but um, it's not very pleasurable, right? And so I wanted to write what they call in the trade a, a tweener, something which is kind of in between sort of an academic, you know, tone, so to speak, and also just more of a popular, you know, sort of pulpy, sort of a fast paced, you know, sort of, sort of a story. And I hope that I succeeded in both books. Um, you know, I, I think you can read both of them fairly quickly. You know, people usually say that it takes a couple of days to read the Jackson Station book. Um, but then I, I, I make kind of liberal use of endnotes as well. And so um, it's, it's very heavily researched um, interviews. Like you mentioned, I did the 60, about 65 interviews for the Live at Jackson Station book. And, um, and, and those are documented in the footnotes too. Um, you know, there's places where I sort of go a little bit more into kind of the academic literature regarding kind of the history of the South and the sociology of the South and, uh, you know, the history of music and so on and so forth. But you don't have to sort of jump into those, those uh, endnotes if you don't want to, if, if you just want to read it as kind of a straight narrative about this blues club and these two gay guys who operated this blues club along with a very eccentric uh, mother, uh, Southern uh, mother, Elizabeth uh, Jackson, then you can. And, um, but I try to have, I try to have fun with it. Um, I, I, I do like to digress. I do like, but I, I hope that I do it in, in such a way that it doesn't get sort of annoying and that it doesn't distract from the general flow of the narrative. But um, overall, um, like I said, I like to try to write a book which is which is enjoyable, something which I personally would, would like to read. Uh, and um, I spent a lot of time editing my work. And, and this, we were talking earlier about the difference between kind of audio presentations and, and making and producing the written word. And, and, and so, I mean, if I, you'd probably be amazed if I, you know, showed you just how many drafts of this thing I went through. Um, but it's a bit like grooming a dog or sort of, you know, brushing the, the, you know, tangles out of, out of, out of a dog's coat. You just have to kind of go back and back and back to kind of smooth it all out. And, and hopefully at the end, you, know, you have something that you're fairly, fairly happy with. Um, and, and I think that's the case here. It sounds fascinating. And actually, I was wondering if you might be able to maybe just read a brief excerpt just to kind of get people's um, appetites. Sure. Let me see where I should I should begin here. I mean, from the standpoint of, you know, the the hate crime and then, you know, everything about it being in such a rural small town, you know, in upstate South Carolina is just really fascinating. I think that alone draws people in. Yeah. Okay. So here's a little excerpt from chapter one. And it starts with an epigram by uh, 
Jim White, a bar is just a church where they serve beer. Parents in Greenwood County warned their children not to go to Jackson Station. My daddy would not let me go up there, said Taylor Wilson Tucker, owner of Thayer's Boutique in Uptown Greenwood, South Carolina. The worry was that their otherwise respectable sons and daughters might get into trouble up at Jackson Station, or Jackson's, that's the locals called it, a music club with a reputation of being a gay bar, drug den, and place for wild parties lasting until the sun came up. Nothing good ever happens on the street after midnight was the collective old-timer wisdom and ever thus advice shrugged off dismissively by a generation used to late nights suffered without too many consequences other than a lack of sleep and the occasional hangover. But what happened in the early hours of April 7th, 1990 was a reckoning of sorts, suggesting that maybe that the elders had been right after all. This is what their parents had been warning them about. Something sinister and even quite evil was in the woods of the South Carolina backcountry that night. South Carolina blues legend Drink Small had just finished his last set of the night when he was approached by the piano player in the legendary blues band. Along with Drink Small, the band had been sharing the billing at Jackson Station with saxophonist Fats Jackson and singer Sweet Betty, both from Atlanta, Georgia. The musician told Small that someone had jumped Gerald Jackson in the parking lot. Gerald is out there lying on the ground, the man said to him. Drink Small went to the front of the club, walked down the ramp and out into the parking lot. He saw Gerald on his back. It was a bad blow, remembers Small. He says blood was gushing from Gerald's head. About a dozen people soon circled 43-year-old Jackson, uh, Gerald Jackson, who was gurgling, grasping for life and coming in and out of consciousness. It was a horrible, chaotic scene. It was 3.30 on Saturday morning. Jackson Station was an all-night club, often staying open until 5 a.m. or later. Even at this hour, there was still a crowd of about 150 people at the club. Late-night parties and blues enthusiasts had driven to the rural town of Hodges, located in the northwest portion of South Carolina, from places like Charleston, Columbia, and Greenville to see the show. Ten minutes earlier, they would have been ordering beer, doing shots, wolfing down a spur burger, or trying to get the phone number of the person at the end of the bar. That, that's amazing. That really gives you a visual of what the situation was like and sets you up for who knows what, and it makes you want to continue. So, yeah, that's great. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks. Um, so since this is Library Voices SC, one of the things I always like to kind of ask is, um, especially as an author and an academic, do you have any kind of interesting library story that you could share? It could be either something personal or, or something you've maybe always been interested about libraries. I do, actually. I have, you know, it's an interesting question, and I think it'd be fun to to write a book about that or, or something, or to, you know, I mean, I'm sure you have great answers uh, over on your podcast. You, you should, you should compile them. Um, but I have a couple, which I would share. And, 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 and one is, um, is fairly mundane and, and that's, and that's more recent. And I'll share that one second. And, and, but the first one actually dates to my college years. And, uh, and, and that there's actually a, a kind of a political dimension to this, which is kind of interesting. Um, when I was a, I think a junior in college, no, I guess it would have been a sophomore in college. I was engaged in a, a group tutorial class. This was at New College at the time was uh, New College of the University of South Florida is where I w went to undergraduate. 
And um, I was in a class, which was a case study in public administration. And it was actually sponsored or kind of run by a fellow by the name of Eric Schickler, who's now the department, the chair at the University of California, Berkeley, funnily enough. Um, But Eric had um, myself and a few other students basically shadow administrators on campus at New College. And I shadowed the uh, vice president for business administration. So basically, I would sit in on various meetings, you know, and and talk to her during the week. And I had learned uh, during my conversation with with her that uh, the following year, the library on campus was was planning some some cutbacks, actually. And they were planning on reducing the the number of hours that that the library was going to be open. And uh, at New College, you know, the library, the Jane Bancroft Library in, on campus in Sarasota, Florida, uh, you know, really was the hub of the campus. And students appreciated going there. Um, it was open, I think, until midnight. I mean, the hours were it, were, it was fairly, you know, accessible, you know, day, day in and day out. And students really appreciated that fact. And so um, the following fall, they actually try to put these, uh, these these cuts into place. And the administration claimed that uh, this was all last minute and they didn't know about these cuts. And so they had no time to plan for it and so on and so forth. And then I actually produced these you know, documents which showed that the administration had been thinking about making these cuts months before. And so that sort of put uh, you know, it was kind of egg on my face from the from the administration standpoint. So they backpedaled and they managed to keep the uh, library open. I think it was until midnight, you know, six days a week or something like that, as opposed to shutting at like seven or eight, which many of us just seem to be absolutely, uh, you know, awful. And so, um, so that was uh, so that was an interesting experience. And so I've I've done my part, I think, to to fight for you know library access hours. And then um, more recently, uh, it was last year, actually, I was in the library and I had my, you know, all professors have their favorite coffee mugs. And so I was going into the library drinking my coffee and I was searching for, you know, various titles and I went to a few different um, stacks. And when I'm going to to check out at the reference desk, I realized that I don't have my coffee mug and that I've somehow misplaced it in the stack somewhere. And so I try to backtrack and I, it's not like I went to that many places in the library. I think that I could have, you know, located my mug, but I looked for about half an hour and I just couldn't find my mug. And so I was very disappointed, obviously, but I approached the library director and I said, huh, Lisa, I think I've, I've misplaced my mug. And she says, oh, don't worry. You know, we'll probably find it. And, and they did within, a, I think, a couple of hours. You know, one of the librarians had, had found the mug and returned it to me. And so that I was very grateful uh, about that. And it kind of got me thinking about just all sorts of things, which I'm sure library staff have found in the library <laughs> over the years, things that get, you know, uh, lost behind the shelves and and so on and so forth. Um, but uh, I've always been a fan of, of libraries and I, I'm, I'm old enough to remember the old bookmobiles, you know, that used to kind of cruise into, into towns and things. Um, and my sisters both are, are actually librarians too, uh, which is, well, I should say my, my both sisters have, have a degree in uh, library science. One of them is, is kind of using it and, and the other one isn't. So 
uh, libraries kind of run in the family too. Very cool. Uh, in fact, while you were talking about losing your mug, I was thinking in our little lost and found bin, I never have to buy an umbrella because there's always an umbrella that I can just go pick up if I need one. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Uh, that's great. Thanks for those stories. So as we kind of wrap up, what kinds of other projects do you have coming up? And have you done any other book talks? And will you be doing some book talks? Well, I was actually on Walter Edgar's journal uh, earlier this week, and so that was that was a real thrill and something that uh, that I would have been looking forward to. I, I was very happy to to be granted a an interview with with Walter. Um, but I'm I'm available. I'd love to come down to uh, to South Carolina uh, State Library uh, if, at some point if if you would you know like to have me down there. Um, the um, as far as other projects go, as I mentioned earlier, authors always need to have sort of something in the work. And so I've got a few things kind of lined up. One is a study. It's a comparative study on Benjamin Mays and W.E.B. Du Bois. Um, du Bois was a, a famous uh, Black sociologist, um, one of the founders of the discipline, actually. Benjamin Mays is, was from Greenwood County, um, about 30 years Du Bois's uh, junior, um, who became mentor for Martin Luther King. And so um, I'm kind of continuing with my kind of local social history theme a little bit. Um, you know, that's kind of what Jackson Station was. It was kind of in my backyard. So it was, it was relatively easy for me to research it. And so I'd like to do that project on Mays to kind of give him um, a little bit more kind of scholarly attention. Um, he, he certainly is, is very well known, but I'd like, I am looking at his relationship with this other very well-known African-American scholar and figure. And then I've got a few other projects in the works, um, one of which is a workplace violence project with a couple of colleagues. And then uh, just recently, I um, was approached by some researchers at Clemson who uh, would like me to participate in kind of a critical infrastructures uh, project as well, looking at climate change, sustainability, and basically how to adapt in the face of uh, natural disasters and, and climate change events and so on and so forth. I did a little bit of work in that area um, in 2017 and 18, but uh, since, since then I've been working primarily on the Jackson Station project. And so now that it's over, I can kind of go back to, you know, some of those other pursuits, but I don't have a, I don't have another book project quite yet. Um, you know, it's it sort of, uh, I, I think that you can't force these things too much. Uh, you kind of have to wait until, you know, the spirit moves you and until, uh, you know, you are kind of presented, you know, with this, this uh, story that you feel you just sort of must share with the world. Um, and, uh, and I haven't, uh, I haven't quite got that, got that call yet. Uh, but um, it might happen. Uh, if it doesn't happen, it's okay. Um, you know, it's, it's a lot of work going into a book and, uh, you have to make a lot of sacrifices and, um, you know, you're, you're not just impacting yourself, but also, you know, your family and so on and so forth. Um, but I really do like the, the project of putting books together, you know, interviewing people, talking to people, doing the research, doing the writing. Um, it's, it's one of my favorite pastimes. So I probably... I probably do have another book in me, but I'm not sure when it will come out. 
Well, it certainly sounds like you do because you have a lot of great ideas and a lot of important stories, I think, that need documentation and recording for posterity. So that's, you know, really a, a big important thing about these kinds of these kinds of projects. So um, it's it's appreciated and thank you for what you do. And I'm looking forward to uh, looking up about making sense of Marshall Lead better. That sounds fascinating as well. So we certainly do appreciate you being with us today and hope to uh, see more of your work. Thank you, Curtis. It's been a real pleasure speaking with you today. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you. And thank you to our listeners. You can find Library Voices SC on Podbean, Stitcher, and TuneIn Radio, or add us on your favorite podcast app. Our podcast website address is libraryvoices.podbean.com. We also love hearing from our listeners, so please send us your comments and suggestions for future topics. Library Voices SC is the official podcast of the South Carolina State Library. So until next time, this is Curtis Rogers. Thanks for listening. 